Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Ali Sinclair has written a number of books, but she's this is her first time chatting with us here at Published or Not. Welcome, Ali. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, delightful. Any war, oh, well, it damages even those who didn't fight. If soldiers didn't return home, there were families hurting. And Ali Sinclair's book, Burning Fields, has such a family. This is a quote. Rosie could feel a heavy melancholy permeating the house. Ali, tell us about the Stratton family. They're your average Australian family in the 1940s. Uh, Like most families around the world, they had an involvement in the war, even though it wasn't actually on their doorstep. And they've been struggling. They've been struggling for a few years. They have lost one son in the war and another one has been missing in action. And and that not knowing has actually driven them to to quite a bit of despair. And Rosie is the youngest of the children and she's been the glue. She's been trying to keep this family together, but it's, it's been a tough ride. Rosie's been in Brisbane for the last three years. What was Rosie doing in Brisbane? Oh, she was working for the Australian War... Uh, service and so she she's got a real knack for numbers and a real mm. knack for mechanics which she learned as she was growing up on the farm so after three years she's back on the farm mm-hmm. I'm going to get you to read an early bit from the book because she's got a pretty uh, traditional father who thinks that women should have embraced perhaps traditional roles yes he does <laughs> Rosie stood on tiptoes and studied the calculations scribbled on a scrap of piece, scrap piece of paper. A few figures were way off. I could do them. For, <clears throat> sorry, my voice is going. <laughs> I could do them for you. She offered a small plate of Anzac biscuits fresh from the oven. The aroma overshadowed the faint musty smell of the papers. Thanks, Rosie, but it's complicated. Why don't you go and help your mother make lunch? But I. Her father stared at her over the rim of his glasses and she pursed her lips. Arguing would not get her anywhere. Instead, Rosie picked up the tray and moved towards the door, her heels clacking against the wooden floorboards. An unfamiliar ripple of annoyance travelled through her and before she could stop herself, she turned and faced her father, who was once again hunched over the tower of paperwork. Is a cult payment up to date? Because if it is, then it's not going to cover July. But if you move the excess from June and take the earnings from May, then it all should balance nicely. Her father drew his brows together and and mumbled, his eyes fixed on the numbers in front of him. She closed the door quietly, satisfied she'd had a say, even if it irritated him. Heaviness wrapped around her heart as images of Rosie and her father flashed before her. It had been so easy when she was a child. Cocooned in love as they'd sat at the kitchen table, solving mathematics, mathematics problems for entertainment. In the past, he'd encouraged her ability, offered her praise. But when she'd grown into a teenager and shown interest in doing the farm's books, he'd backed off like she had the plague. Like she'd had the plague, yes, you know, because she was showing that she actually had skills. Um, Now, she doesn't actually want to tell them why she came home. And we're not even going to tell the listeners why she came (laughs) home after after being independent in Mm -hmm. uh, Brisbane for three years. So... The father doesn't actually want her to do the books but also doesn't want her her out 
with the workers. Now, where is this? Burning fields. Tell us where and when. Uh, It's set in a fictional town in Queensland, in North Queensland, and I've taken all my favourite bits of the small towns that I've visited over the years and put it into one one town called Piri River. And it's it's a remote town, so it is very, very rural. And the community has has been a strong community over the years, but war has, you know, it's infiltrated this community in so many ways that it, it's still quite fractured. Yeah. Uh, her father doesn't want her out with the men workers, the cane cutters, and quote from the book, men who work the land often have sordid or tragic histories. The fields are no place for a woman. So who is working the cane? Who's cutting the cane? There's. It's interesting because Rosie's father is in some ways can come across as racist, but he's actually not because the people who work for him are from the Philippines, they're from the Pacific, they're from... Eastern European countries. They're from a lot of different nationalities, but there's no Italians. No Italians? No. He refuses to employ Italians. And then he will have nothing to do with the neighbouring farm. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they're Italians. Ah. <laughs> so this is another story that runs through the whole book, and it's not in far northern Queensland cane fields. Where's the other story set? The other story is set in Italy, funnily enough, <laughs> and it follows Thomas's story. And this is 1943, so it's prior to 1948. And as we follow Thomas's story, we, we start to see how things are unfolding there. Of course, Mussolini is in Italy at this stage mm-hmm. with the black shirts enforcing all of his powers. And it was not easy for any citizens. Being yeah. Jewish or not, you were, you know, the Jews were just stripped of all their property and marriage rights and citizenship. But um, even the locals Mm -hmm. found it very, very difficult. Yeah. So uh, what did – this is where we pick up Thomas's story. Uh, How was he involved? Thomas Thomas was actually a really interesting character because he's a pacifist at heart. But he could see so much wrong going in on in his country that he couldn't stand by and do nothing. So he's really conflicted about what he can do to help his people that he feels so strongly about, but without actually having to go out and do some of the horrendous things that people have to do or do do in war. Yeah, there's an underground uh, group of local. Men, oh no, they weren't all men, but they were fighters. They were sort of getting information, they were passing information, they were sort of trying to do whatever they could. Mm. And uh, who headed that one up? Ah, oh, yes, <laughs> Thomas's old school friend, mm. Abato. Yes, he's very interesting. <laughs> he, he was, yes, he proved to be quite interesting. Um, now, then we come back, and as Thomas moves to Australia with his family, uh, now, Thomas is educated, you know, mm-hmm. and this is what he f- finds very hard because because I come from Sicily, I have found some of your countrymen think I am uneducated and poor and of no value. This is something he said to Rosalie. So where does he meet Rosalie? They meet on a bus travelling to Piri River and uh, they it, it's quite an accidental meeting. Um, uh, Thomas is actually sitting next to a young mother and the baby throws up on him. <laughs> And the only spare seat is next to Rosie, so and he has to move. So that's that's and they get chatting and And she actually sort of thinks, Oh, he's rather handsome, he doesn't mm-hmm. smell too good, but yes, that's right. And where's Thomas's family? 
Thomas's family are um, they're living next door they're to, the to Rosie's family, right next yep. door to uh, Rosie's family. <laughs> uh, of course, you know there were Italians in Australia through the war, and one start it was stage they went into internment camps, and then when Italy became allies, but a lot of distrust mm. and the little township of Piri River also had distrust. Yes, yes. There were members of the community, like Rosie, who were more than happy to accept people on who they were, not where they were from. Um, but then there was also a pretty pretty big element as well who, who didn't trust people based on their nationalities. And that's where Thomas and his family find it really hard to fit in. Yeah. Community dance. Oh, look, you know the way. The music's going, the plates, la- the, the tables are laden with food, all the g- girls are inside and then there's a certain group out on the veranda. Who are they? Oh, yes. Smoking uh, and drinking. Yes, they're, they're the louts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the main leader is Ken. Ken. Ken now, Ridley. we don't really know much about Ken. Mm-hmm. We don't know, you know, he, he, he could have been a bully straight from school because Rosie knew him at school as a bully, but he was always this threat, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He pops out when you least expect it, causing all kinds of trouble. (laughs) And, of course, this is back in the time where uh, hotels were divided. You know, there was the women's salon, but, you know, they couldn't really order a drink. They had to wait for a man to bring them a drink. Mm -hmm. And Rosie's mum is getting deliveries of brandy. She is. Rosie's Mm. mum is not coping not coping at all with her her boys, um, one missing and, and knowing the other one's pa- passed away. And she's just, she's tried to hold it together, but she's just so fragile that the cracks really become quite wide open and, and Rose is there to try and help her. So the parents aren't functioning properly. Mm-hmm. The workers are getting underpaid. And then an old Italian collapses at their farmhouse. Oh, lovely Luca. Lovely Luca. Yes. And this brings Thomas and Rosie together again. But they've both got secrets. You know, sort of, his is something to do with his scar under his eye. Mm-hmm. And hers, something about the skills that she got, she's got. And, you know, the skills that she even devises the pulley system on the clothesline for a best friend, Kitty. Oh, that's pretty clever. <laughs> so Rosie's... In a challenging tradition, a challenge. She's challenging the tradition of a female starting to run the farm, and there's influences outside that really want her to fail. Mm. That's the true. tensions between the two families <laughs> increase, and then there's Thomas's nonna. Oh, oh she's fun. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny when when I write. Some characters come fully formed and Nonna, from the moment she hit the page for the first time, I just knew exactly who she was, what she was about. Did you, you even had her height? <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, yeah. I had a picture of her in my head. I knew exactly what she looked like. <laughs> and she's not uneducated, is she? No. She's, she's got street smarts, but she's also quite educated as well. She, yeah. she really takes it upon herself to, to learn about the world and to really involve herself in the community and, and try and understand how people tick. But she hasn't involved herself very much in this community no, that's that's true. And yeah. this problem, this is a problem that the the community actually see them as uh, maybe better than themselves, or just separate. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. The Conti family have, I mean, they've, they've had a pretty traumatic, you know, five seven years and so when they have moved to Australia they have found it really difficult they've tried to they've tried to sort of take themselves out of the community because they know that there's such a strong undercurrent against Italians and rather than get involved in any trouble they just keep try try and keep to themselves but Rosalie can't cuz she's I think she's got the hots for Thomas <laughs> she certainly has but as i said Thomas is not a he is no good for any girls. He will only break your heart. For this reason, I say it not a good idea to fall in love with him. No good for you. No good for him. Mm-hmm. Oh. So how is Rosie going to rebuild her family without losing the man she loves? Oh. Now, this is something. It was an interesting thing that um, I've just actually come back from Italy and they had a lot of mimosa. Oh, yes. In flower. Yes. Now, explain what mimosa is. Oh, look, one of the things I love about books, like writing my books, is the research. And I was writing a touching scene uh, about Thomas and, and Rosie and he was telling her how he thought she was really strong and what have you. And then I was looking at the different plants up around the area. I was looking at the silver wattle and then I started doing a little bit of research and I realised that in Italy they use the mimosa, which is what we call the silver wattle, um, as a sign of respect for women on International Women's Day in Italy. So they give it to, to women to say, you know, we appreciate what you do. To show you we value what you do. Mm. We also do this to let women know they are not alone in the struggle to be considered equal. Ah. I know it fit in perfectly. <laughs> it was just gold. <laughs> Ali Sinclair, look, it was just a delight to read this book. It, um, it had some surprises in it. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yes. And yeah, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. So Ali Sinclair's book, The Burning Fields by Mira Harlequin. And, oh, Good stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Are we, are we going to get a sequel? Funnily enough, I've had a few readers write to me and ask. Because I am tossing some ideas around. I just feel they haven't really used their potential, these two. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so one Italian story. Well, talking of Italian stories, I've got a first-time novelist as well. I've got uh, a novel about, well, a collection of short stories about a fractured community in a small remote town but my author is Italian. Ah. <laughs> but it's about leaving such a, a town. So even after you leave your homeland, the people and places stay with us in memory. Moreno Giovanoni explores these memories of a world he left when he was a child in his collection, The Fireflies of Autumn. So, Moreno, welcome to 3CR. Thank you, David. Now, San Genese, what a delightful village. What are some of the challenges this villages this village faces because it's yep. sort of post World War Two? Yes, um, and after the war, everything uh, had changed. Um, there's actually a long section in the book about the changes that uh, took place after after the war. Uh, the challenges are to do with work. People are leaving uh, to look for work. Some people are coming to Australia. Some people go to some South American countries. They might go to Venezuela or Argentina. I mean, this was happening before the war as well. Um, People before the war were tending to go to America if they could. America clamped down a little bit on immigration 
uh, just before the war or even I think in the 30s sometime. But meanwhile, a lot of uh, Italians had gone there. And, you know, one big challenge they face is they leave, they get to America, they realise it's not quite the place they thought it was going to be. They come back then they regret ever coming back. Well, we're going to explore some of those issues, but you've also got a range of eccentric characters, shall we say? Okay. I mean, Ancilla, the old maid, uh, Ludwina and Mariella, who are imbeciles. You've even got one, Tommaso Giovannoni, the killer. That's right. Uh, A family uh, relation, perhaps? Well, the, the, the problem is that most people in the village have the surname Giovannoni. Oh, right. Everybody is related, but nobody's related. I mean, my parents had the same surname. Uh, they lived oh, 150 metres apart in the same village, but they were no relationship. That's what they would. Ha- everybody would have you believe. You go to the cemetery and 90% of the names on the headstones are Giovannoni. Um, but Tommaso, um, I mean, in the, in the tale itself... Uh, uh, but everybody disclaims any relationship with Tommaso until with the passage of time they come to see him in a different way. They don't want to know him because he kills someone. So no one wants to have anything to do with a murderer. But as time passes, people start to change their minds. But it's the same with every character. They've all mm. got their trait or eccentricity, yep. which is sort of absorbed by mm. the village as part of that village, community, identity. Yes. But also then the nature of what's going on here in terms of the background. In Valora, one of the hamlets in the village of San Genese, there lived an old woman called Ancilla with her two nieces, Ludwina and Mariella. They were the poorest family in the villages. They had no fields, no men to do the hard work, and only one scrawny cow which they kept in the stable of their amicable neighbour, Buleta. They also had three scabby, unfeathered hens, a small worm-infested vegetable garden, about four metres by four metres in area, a brucchiotto fig tree, which is the Florentine variety. Their neighbours gave them soup and bread sometimes, and distant family members from Cologna came to visit once a year and always brought them three large wooden tubs of salted pork. The nature of what we've got mm. here, mm. poverty, mm. no future, yep. no prospects. Yes. The, the landscape that you've actually painted of this yep. village. Yeah. Look, uh, for this uh, family in particular and for a particular period, um, I wanted really to paint a fairly desolate picture. I wanted to create total devastation in the reader, if I possibly could. But there's a humanity there in mm. that devastation. Yes, well, I I, I personally love these characters. Um, And I I also wrote it from the point of view of an omniscient, almost godlike narrator who looks down on his creation and thinks, oh, you poor things. You know, you, you poor things. I mean, I feel a lot of sympathy for my characters. I love my characters. And yet they are what they are. They are what they are. And they've some of them, as you said before, are trying to leave. Uh, some are trying after leaving to return. But yep. what we have here, um, they, uh, because of the limited future in San Genese, mm-hmm. uh, you've got Ugo, Vitale, uh, the um, parents of Ludwina and Mariella who, who leave. Yep. But there's a cost associated with leaving. Regret, yes. guilt, shame. That's right. So they're not just yep. eccentric characters. No. There's that 
emotional quotient as well yes, yes. that you've created in this. Yes. Well, the, the issue of uh, immigration and returning, that I, I tried to make that an underlying theme. It, it, I didn't want to make it like up front, but it's always there bubbling away below the surface. Um, it's as if, look, again, I was thinking, you know, this godlike narrator is seeing these human creatures running around, trying to achieve, looking for, a, you know, the land of milk and honey, coming back. They're not happy when they leave. They're not happy when they come back. Meanwhile, you know, I put this in as a little bit of a contrast. Nature itself represented by the fireflies. Fireflies just flit about doing what they're supposed to do. You know, fireflies are totally in the moment. They're totally at home uh, doing what they do. They do what they're supposed to do, which is light up things and, you know, just skip around from one bush to another. Let's get on to this godlike narrator, though, because mm -hmm. that's you in many ways. You've got Ugo sort of beginning this story you've got the translator at the end you are a translator That's in right. real life yes um, and then there's this opening to the book uh, addressed to the reader yes. when you leave your homeland yep. you leave behind the people you know the people your mother and father knew yes. your grandfathers and grandmothers brothers and sisters cousins uncles and aunts and yep. neighbors the yep. people who knew who you are immediately because you look like your father That's you right. leave behind the courtyards the roads yep. the lanes the houses the colors of the houses the rows of houses the names of all small groups of houses, and yeah. so it goes. Yes. And it's like this disconnection mm. Uh, mm. that's taken place yeah. um, where Ugo, who's sort of yep. looking back yes. on what's happened. Yes, and you know where he ends up. If you, you know, turning the page, he ends up in North Fitzroy. Yes. You know, and he's wandering around the streets. You know, no one can understand his language. No one can even pronounce his name. And, you know, that, that's where he ends up. So this is, this is the, the dilemma, in a sense, of the migrant. But you was leave... this your dilemma? Because you came out here when you were two. I was two. Okay. The, the Ugo character is based uh, loosely on my own father, um, who in the final years of his life was asking my brother and I, he was 89 at the time, um, did I do the right thing in coming to Australia at the age of 30? That's how old he was when he came. So I thought to myself, what is going on here? If after a lifetime in Australia, you can ask yourself whether you did the right thing. It made me think about migrants in general. How happy are they? Um, you know, you ask them on Australia Day when they've all been to their citizenship ceremony and they say, oh, I'm so grateful. Thank you, Australia, for welcoming me in here and for accepting me and so on. But, you know, I ask myself, what else are they going to say? You know, because people will say, well, if you don't like it here, go back. But you've also got yourself in here as well, because yep. you're the translator in many ways that's yes. a, as your role. Sure. And you went sure. back to San Genese. I did, yes. Um, yes. But then it's a sort of shock in going back in some ways. There was a shock, because I had uh, lived there. Um, I lived there in my, uh, my mid-teens and then again in my late teens. I went back when I was a grown man with a family, took my children back, and I saw that everybody had died. I hadn't been back for 20 years. And the people that I had met uh, were all in the cemetery. That's, so one of the first things I did was go to the cemetery. And that's where they were. These are people like my grandparents that I'd lived with while I was going to university in Pisa. Um, you know, and uh, 
uncles and aunts and even uh, you know some couple of good friends had died. But it raises the question, yeah. can you ever return? If you ever migrate, can you ever return at whatever age? Good question, David. <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, and I would say, no, you can't. It's almost better if you never leave in the first place. Um, it, it seems to me that uh, migration is a poor choice if you have a choice. Now, I realise that people, a lot of people don't. They're fleeing wars and poverty and so on. But I was looking at it from the point of view of a lot of migrants in the 50s who uh, were economic migrants. Um, my parents were economic migrants. I mean, we use that term nowadays as if it's a dirty term. You know, these are dirty words, economic migrants. Um, but Australia needed them, so they came and they worked. Um, these days, we don't consider that a good enough reason to accept migrants, that they come here to improve their lot, which is what my parents were trying to do. The people who didn't come to Australia uh, in the 50s, and very few people actually from my village came to Australia, um, but uh, they, they lived perfectly good lives in Italy. They had cars, they had houses, they raised their families, the children went to university. So you have to wonder, you know, what did you achieve by But it's the dream of the other. Absolutely. Um, the, what might yeah. have been. And you've seen the epigraph to the book, uh, Migrants never arrive at their destination, you know. There's also a religious undercurrent, can I call it that, in the way you're writing your stories. Uh, The Enchanted Glade and the Bubbling Brook takes place over seven days. And they're they're actually leaving their village because they're threatened by the military. That's right. The German and and Americans are firing over the village. That's right. But they leave and come back. It's sort of like the migration story in a creation story. It is. Look, and I mean, this was, this was the intention. I wanted to create this little uh, pocket, this magical world. They, they leave the village because, as you said, the armies are fighting, launching bombs across the sky at each other, and occasionally there's a stray one and it lands on a house and blows somebody up. So they decide, we're getting out of here until you know, the armies have sorted it out. They go, they move into a place, a secluded place in the hills, um, which is an enchanted glade. Um, and we all know when you hear that term, everyone has a mental, Im- you know, an image of what that means. An enchanted glade, a babbling brook, you know, the babbling brook. And it's a magical place where they can uh, be together and do what they would do. The sun goes, you know, the sun rises and the sun sets every day. They play There's a cards. bit of fornication. There is a little bit. There's a little <laughs> bit of that. But this is normal. I mean, especially that, that fornication bit, it happens, I think, on the sixth day which is when God actually said to be fruitful and multiply. So those two young people, that's exactly what they do. Um, but there are other yeah. elements there. I mean, in An Anagraphical Desire, which is another yes. story, yes. they're looking through the records for yes. Genesius or, yes. or what came before yeah. uh, the founder of the village, yes. Genesius. And yes. it's a bit like, well, what came before Genesis? And, and Absolutely, though. No. It could be like that. I'll leave it to the reader. To, yeah, in, well, to indeed. Work that out. Yes. And because yes. it's not overburdening. Yep. No. In, in, it's just the suggestion yes. lying gently there That's in the right. background yep. for us to think yes. through. You've yes. got uh, yes. Moses speaking to God at one yes. stage yes. Uh, about yep. his yep. Uh, son who's not quite um, yep. all there, sure. sort of thing, sure. and, and what's been done. Mm. So where do you place yourself in all of this in terms of um, you are the narrator, yep. you are a god in many ways, creating yes. these figures and yes. reclaiming the past? Yep. Yep. Um, look, I certainly wanted to uh, capture uh, the flavour of the village so that it would be um, 
recorded. So I consider this to be a record of what life was and might have been like in this particular village in Tuscany, near Florence. It's not far from the freeway to Florence. You can get to Florence in 45 minutes from this village. Um, so capturing the flavour of the village. And the other thing I wanted to do was to touch on the question of migration and the impact on people and, and what it does to them. But are you also touching on your own identity? Absolutely, yes, yes. Look, I, some people ask me sometimes, do you feel Australian? I say, well, I don't know. I, I really can't answer that question. Because, um, you know, in a sense, I don't know what Australian is. I mean, I'm the descendant of Italian settlers. Like, there are people who are descendants of Irish settlers and Scottish and English settlers. And somehow they end up thinking they're the real Australians and maybe I'm not. So and, to be Australian yeah. is to be uh, part of the diaspora. Absolutely. I mean, we're probably an entire diaspora here. There's one group of people... The Indigenous, yes. ...who were here and... We probably don't acknowledge it enough. Mm. We don't acknowledge oh. it. But the rest of us, we are descendants of settlers. Well, on that note, we are going to have to finish the conversation. I can't believe how much similarity there was. Well, and I think, you know... But this, is, this is the story of Australia, though. Yes, and, and then how the Europeans assimilated uh, other groups coming into the country, etc. Yeah. And, and those heritage threads mm. permeate. And the sort of generations then and how we identify with ourselves. And how our culture, the Australian culture, has just been enriched. Well, well we say multicultural, but what does it mean mm. in terms of is it just being uh, full of the guilt, the shame, the hope um, that, and the aspiration rather than being anything that can be locked into? I just want to ask one question. Mm. We're going to have to be quick. Fireflies, mm. do they ask about the meaning of life? No. They just go and get on and do it. They just get on and do it. And look, the, the other thing is they normally don't appear in autumn. Fireflies are a summer uh, insect. The fact that they're coming around in autumn is, means there's something weird going on. Oh. We're going to have to make room we for are. ruminations. Ruminations. The, the well. book was The Fireflies of Autumn by Moreno Giovanni, and it's and, black ink. And I was speaking with Ali Sinclair, her Burning Fields, Mira Harlequin. Thanks, authors. Thanks, David. Thanks, Thank you for Jan. Me. And we'll see you next time.